Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Pagans Tonight Radio Network, the voice of the pagan world. Pagans Tonight is sponsored by Witchschool.com, your anyone, anytime, anywhere magical education. Hello, and thank you for tuning in today. I am Michael Greywolf. Tonight's episode is actually going to be a replay of our uh, episode number 13 on pagan activism with uh, Dr. Susan Harper, who is my co-host on All Acts of Love and Pleasure here on the Pagan Tonight uh, radio network. Uh, We'll be back in a couple of weeks with a brand new episode. Uh, Matthew uh, and I are trying to get some kinks worked out. you know, life has just kind of gotten in the way of getting stuff done, unfortunately. Um, but we are going to be moving back to showtime. Uh, you know, we have been doing 2 a.m., sorry, not 2 a.m., 2 p.m. for the last uh, a year and a half now, roughly. But because of my new job, I cannot do the 2 p.m. Uh, time slot anymore. So we're going to move it back to uh, around 7 or 8 p.m. Uh, east, no, sorry, 7 or 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. So tonight's episode, we're going ahead and starting at that time. And <clears throat> tonight's episode is a little long. It's about two hours. So I hope you enjoy it. It's one of our first episodes. So, And I think right now, with it being almost Pride season, it's a very good episode to you know, listen to, because Pride was originally a protest, and it should still be a protest. So, hope you enjoy our episode on pagan activism. Uh, let me get it to play. And uh, we will be back in two weeks. If you have any comments, questions, please feel free to email us at walkingtheunnamedpath at gmail.com or hit us up on Facebook at facebook.com slash walkingtheunnamedpath. Hello, and thank you for tuning in today. I am Michael Graywolf, artist, traveler, all-around geek, witch, and a brother initiate, and soon to be teacher of the Unnamed Path. Hey, Matthew. You, do you hey. Thank you again? I, I could have oh, I'm sorry. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm Matthew Sidney, <laughs> songwriter, storyteller, <laughs> mystic, and uh, initiate of the Unnamed Path. And you are listening to Walking Down Main Path. On this podcast, we discuss the teachings and techniques given to us by the ancestors and laid out by our late founder, Hyperion. We also touch on topics and ideas pertaining to queer pagan men on a general basis. We're glad you've decided to join us today, and we hope that you'll be part of the show by calling in area code 347-308-8222. And you can also hang out in the chat room, which will get up and running in just a second. And you can also email us at walkingunnamedpath at gmail.com. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at walking underscore the UP. And you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash walkingunnamedpath. And you know, for today's episode, we're going to be getting 
a little political. So before we jump into that, I just want to say that the ideas and opinions expressed in this episode are going to be those solely of myself and Matthew and our guest, Dr. Susan. Uh, They do not necessarily reflect the ideas and opinions of Wood School International or Payne's Tonight Radio or even uh, the Unnamed Path Brotherhood. So, how are you doing, Matthew? I'm doing very well, thank you. This has been uh, a busy time for me. This is actually uh, the busiest time of year and the busiest week in particular for what I do at my day job, uh, that which uh, shall not be named. And uh, these are also (laughs) obviously um, turbulent times emotionally for my countrymen. And being an empath, I uh, cannot escape that. So um, I've been highly motivated to get very deep into my spiritual practice and lots of meditation, lots of grounding, lots of research, lots of tooling up. And actually, I'm feeling really good about it. I actually believe that this is an incredibly precious and exciting and wonderful time to be alive. Yes. Yeah. How are you doing? Ben? Oh, I'm, I'm okay. Um, it's been a very nice week this past week. Um, the weather has been amazing, which is both good and bad. Um, It's good because amazing weather, uh, not freezing. Well, it wasn't freezing during the week. It got really cold today. (laughs) And bad because a lot of people are telling me that it's just so unusual to be this warm this time of the year right now here in Illinois. So... Unfortunately, we're seeing, you know, that's an effect of global warming. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, unseasonably warm and humid here um, in South Florida. Um, We're getting, uh, it's uh, February, but it really feels a lot more like May. Yeah, but other than that, it's been a pretty good week, Uh, actually pretty good couple of weeks um last week uh was all busy and whatnot getting ready for my other show all acts of love and pleasure uh with my co-host dr susan who's also our guest today we had storm fairy wolf on and we were talking about his new book betwixt and between Uh, oh cool it was a lot of fun and great interview. Uh, he's actually been on a couple of Pagan Tonight shows. So. But I'm still reading through his book some more because there's just so much to it. It's such a meaty read. Mm-hmm. So. And was very thrilled and surprised of the parallels between Storm's past, um, the fairy tradition, well, his version of the fairy tradition, and our path, the you know the unnamed path. You know, they do focus yeah, I, a lot on shadow work and whatnot. So, 
Yeah, I think there's a lot of, um, I think a lot of people have observed that. I think there's a lot of compatibility. I think Unnamed Path and the ferry, Anderson Ferry tradition, um, are certainly, uh, certainly have parallels. And I, I've no doubt personally that there are subtle connections uh, between well, those. So, you know, it's, <clears throat> you know, maybe a slightly different operating system, but sometimes you're, you're still totally. cruising, you're still visiting the same interwebs. Well, a great thing about the ferry tradition, well, great thing about Storm is he knew and worked very closely with Hyperion. So they would, you know, get together and hang out quite a bit and share information. So and that's why there's so much crossover. They do draw from a different energy frequency than we do because we are tapped into, you know, the energy of the men who have been ancestors. They're tapped into their fairy ancestors and spirits and gods. So, but they are very queer and non-binary uh, energy that they're tapped into. So, a bit of the same flavor, but not exactly the same. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, hopefully, you know. Uh, maybe one day we can get uh, Storm to come on and chat with us sometime because uh, I would certainly yeah, love that would to learn awesome. more about it. Yeah. I have and to I've heard give, I have to, about it. Yeah, I'll have to give him a ring and see if he'd be willing to come on. He, Right now, him and his partner, Devin Hunter, are currently at Convocation. Um, they were at Pantheacon last week. Uh, they're at convocation. convocation. Oh my gosh! I I knew you were going to ask me that. I I always ask the hard questions. Yeah. Convocation. I want to say it's almost like PantheaCon. It's another convention uh, that takes place in a hotel. Convocation. And I can't remember. I want to say that it. Put on by. Where's it put on? Because uh, it takes place in Ohio. Invention of the many mystical spiritual paths in space, and the theme for 2017 is based on Chachma, the seeker of wisdom. Mm. Uh, <clears throat> forgive me for knowing a little bit of Hebrew. Um, <laughs> which is uh, Hebrew for wisdom. Uh, the seeker of wisdom must release the illusion of knowledge. Mm, I like that. Since 1995, this four-day event has brought together over 100 classes and rituals presented by local instructors, internationally renowned guest speakers and authors, along with workshops. Convocation also offers over 35 tables of merchandise in our merchant room, an art show, and the largest indoor drum circle in the Midwest. Very cool. Yeah, it's kind of it's one of those things where I'm like, damn it, I wish I'd known about it, you know, ahead of time. Like, I've we have I have learned of so many different conventions that are going on, you know, in this area. I'm like, well, crap, I wish I'd known about it. Kind of, you know, I also wish I had the money to go. 
But, uh, <laughs> oh, my God. It's, I know, right? As soon as I go into early retirement, I'm going to attend all the things. Yeah. And I know Storm and Devin are going to be going to Quirinth. You know, I, when we had Jonah on... Uh, yeah. Was it last year? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, he, I think he mentioned them, but Storm was also talking about it uh, when we had him on the show last week. So he was very excited about it, and you know we hope that Quarant gets enough participants that you know they will be there next year. So, <sighs> so Michael, oh, before you know, before we get too far ahead, tell me. You know, I just, my life's been crazy this week. Tell me and our listeners about today's topic and today's guest. Yes. So today's topic is pagan, pagan activism or pagans and activism. Um, you know, with so much going on right now in our in our country in this turbulent political environment. We as witches need to, you know, start standing up and making our voices heard on political issues. Now, you know, I mentioned it earlier about you know the disclaimer for you know witchschool.com and Pagans Tonight and even Down Name Path. You know, when one of just so people know, when one of the brothers in the Unnamed Path takes a stand on a certain issue, more than likely, um, not more than likely, the issue they're taking a stand on is something that's important to that individual brother. Unless you see something on unnamedpath.com where we've had a consensus and decided to all take a stand on an issue. Uh, Like, I am very passionate about you know, the Standing Rock situation, my vocalness and concerns that I express on that are mine alone, not necessarily those of my fellow brothers. And if they decide they share my viewpoints, they'll also be vocal. And same with Matthew. Whatever Matthew is passionate about and vocal about, you know, he could... He could actually, you know, be on the side of, you know, oh, the pipeline's a good thing. That's totally him. That could be him. I'm not saying that is Matthew. For <laughs> um, the record, but, I don't like any pipeline. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, for example, you know, we can both have differing issue, differing uh, views on an issue, and that is okay. Um, because yeah, there think, are and, and, they are yeah, our views. And, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just gonna I was just gonna echo what you were saying and and just kind of clear the field. You know, in today's episode, you're gonna hear a lot of Michael's opinions. You're gonna hear my opinions. You're gonna hear our guests' opinions, and those are our opinions. It doesn't reflect the unnamed path as as a group, and it certainly doesn't reflect the opinions of any of the other brothers. Also, I encourage listeners to dial in, and even if you disagree with us on an issue, we welcome the dialogue. Um, I've been doing a lot of soul searching on this, and personally, I'm very committed to not putting up a wall between um, 
those who feel the way I do and the, those who feel differently. Um, I think it's important for us to dialogue. I think it's important for us to um, to keep dialoguing and keep chipping away at what's dividing us so that we can reach towards that common ground. So, you know, don't be shy about dialing in. Um, we will make every effort to be respectful um, of everyone's point of view. Mm-hmm. And Without censoring you know, to our get own. Into, <laughs> to get into who our guest is today, our guest today is Dr. Susan Harper. Um, Dr. Harper is an activist, an advocate, an educator, and ritual specialist living in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. She holds a Ph.D. in cultural anthropology from Southern Methodist University and will earn her M.A. Her MA in, cultural, oh, sorry, in Multicultural Women's and Gender Studies from Texas Women's University in May 2017. Yay, I didn't know that. <laughs> Dr. Susan hosts women's circles and other rituals in the Dallas area and teaches courses both in person and online. She is the co-host of All Acts of Love and Pleasure on Pagan's Night Radio, which is a podcast that talks about sex and sexuality uh, from a pagan perspective. And she also she is also active at several progressive causes, including LGBTQ justice, gender justice, sexual violence prevention, and domestic violence prevention. And let's bring Dr. Susan on. Hello, Dr. Susan. Hey, how are you guys today? We're doing well. Doing how are fabulous. you? I'm good. I'm good. It's a beautiful, unseasonably warm day in Texas, too. So been outside a little bit and kind of uh, enjoying the fruits of climate change, I guess. But it's... <laughs> Yeah. That was 80 it was 82 degrees on Thursday. It's not quite that warm today. In the 60s here. Yeah, I think Thursday it was in the 70s up here. Like mm-hmm. almost 80s mm-hmm. actually. Almost in the 80s actually. Oh, yuck. So, Ho- hoping it yeah. doesn't mean it's going to be 100 degrees here in May. Oh my gosh. Wow. I'm glad I'm not moving back to Texas until October. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I have my first camping festival in of the year in April, and I'm hoping that it's going to stay mild. Uh, it can be a little bit warmer than it is today, but I don't want it to be 90 degrees in, in April. Now, um, Dr. Susan, could you tell us a little bit about your experience uh, in activism? Um, you know. Sure. Uh, well, I, I always tell people I did my first piece of political activism when I was six. My mother was very politically active, and so I went with her to a fundraising rally for Tom Daschle the first time he ran for the House of Representatives in South Dakota in 1980. So I was about five and a half, and uh, I basically sat on the table and looked cute while my mother registered voters. But Aww. that kind of gave me the bug. Yeah, it was super cute. I was super cute. Um, my mom was super active. Um, she campaigned for Democratic candidates and progressive causes all around my home state and was a member of the League of Women Voters, among others. 
So I grew up with her really, you know, pushing for being active in the political process. Uh, and especially around uh, women's causes. And she was very active with the American Diabetes Association. So not just around electoral politics, but around important causes. And so I've had the bug my whole life. Uh, I got active on my own around the time of the first Gulf War when I was about 17 and was in a very small minority of people that were saying going into Iraq was not a good thing, but really sort of enjoyed talking with other people and and thinking about ways to make that opinion seen and heard. And especially in a pre-internet age, it's kind of an interesting time to be doing activism. And we weren't exactly having the large marches and everything we saw around the second Iraq war and that we're seeing now, but it was enough to keep me wanting to read about progressive politics and be involved in the way that I could. Um, I did a lot of student governments and let me tell you, I never thought I would thank my high school debate teacher for making me learn parliamentary procedure, but I have found it immensely (laughs) valuable over the last three years, (laughs) last four years. And I've sort of watched things happen in the Texas uh, legislature and in the U S Congress. So I was really interested in the sort of inner workings. And when I, came into paganism, I came in through feminist goddess worship because I was looking for something that was explicitly political and explicitly calling for social justice. And when I found feminist craft, that was, that was the beginning of a a long love affair. And through that part of my life, I've continued to be very active in causes around justice for women and justice for queer folks. Um, particularly, like I said, my bio around uh, interpersonal violence and sexual violence, but also around things like equal pay and around marriage rights uh, and around issues of religious freedom. And um, now I'm kind of up to my ears because I kind of feel like this period of time, as scary as it is, I kind of feel like I was born for this. Like the last 30 years of my life have really prepared me to – have a set of skills that a lot of people are looking for. Um, so as much as I would like things not to be the kind of tire fire they are in the country right now, I <laughs> feel I feel like I'm really well prepared to help organize people and help get information out because I am a, a networker and an educator always. So it's been sort of interesting to see all those skills come together. Susan, tell us. Tell our listeners a little bit about what, uh, in the activist world, what you're working on now. Sure. Uh, Well, I'm doing a couple things. I have a Facebook group that I set up the morning after the election that I thought was going to be for me and like 30 friends, and now there's 1,200 people in it. That's a clearinghouse for direct actions, gatherings, rallies. Uh, We curate it really carefully so that it is uh, just, direct action focused and there's some, some networking threads. Um, but that was when I woke up the morning after the election and realized that what had happened was not a nightmare. Uh, that was something that I could immediately do was I could aggregate information, which is something that I'm really good at. And I have a fabulous team of mods that helps me with that. Um, that 
group is uh, set to secret to keep the trolls out, but between Michael and I, you <laughs> can reach out and we can we can see about getting you yeah. in there if you want to know. Um, so I'm doing a lot of a lot of that. Um, in particular, I'm interested in getting people registered and getting registered voters out to the polls for 2018 and local elections between now and then. Um, oh, that's great. I, it's mm. so important because the, the, you know, the thing with, with Texas is, and with a lot of places, is we have a lot of Democratic and progressive voters who are registered, but they don't vote. Yep. And if you could get them out to the polls, it would make a difference. Um, uh, John Cornyn, our senator, our senior senator, won Texas by fewer votes than Hillary Clinton got. So if we could just get most of those people that came out and voted for Clinton to vote Democratic in the next uh, senator election, we could take that seat back. It's it's a matter of numbers. So uh, doing a lot of that, and uh, I'm also really passionate about people getting basic civics knowledge because I think a lot of people don't vote and they don't engage because they don't know how the system works. I was really lucky to get a good civics education and was horrified when I realized that most of my friends who have been through Texas public schools did not get that same education. So I'm really there. And I'm also doing a lot of work around challenging white supremacy, especially in leftist and liberal spaces, challenging that soft racism that happens Mm -hmm. in especially white feminist spaces. Um, Mm -hmm. So I, Doing work with that, I, I am on a, two of the Facebook groups that I'm really active on. I'm one of a handful of deputized white nonsense wranglers <laughs> that when uh, when white women are being white women, I'm the one who gets to talk to them <laughs> about, okay, come here. <laughs> Maybe let's not do that. It's been super interesting because I grew up in one of the whitest places in the country um, and had to really grapple with my own internalized uh, white supremacy and mm-hmm. having been raised as like, you know, in the generation that is taught that telling people that we don't see color is a nice thing. Uh, so having had to do all that hard work myself and continuing to do it, it's interesting to be in that position, but uh, I see it as kind of part of my larger organizing and larger sort of coalition building. Uh, and I'm also organizing magical practitioners who want to bring that set of skills into our resistance as well as I love that. That's, yeah. That's exciting. And that's something, yeah. That's something that fascinates me. And um, locally, you know, we've been leveraging some of that. We've been very inspired by standing rock and I'm intrigued mm-hmm. by something you said. Um, it sounds like you came into paganism by way of your feminist leadings, your political mm-hmm. leanings. Um, And I don't know if you've seen some of what I've experienced Um, in my pagan community. I'm finding some pagans and spiritual folks in general who are very reluctant to engage in direct action, who are very reluctant to engage. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's – go ahead. Yeah, how do you approach that? How do you – you know, do you just wave goodbye to those people, or do you, is there? Do you have an elevator speech that you use to help win them over? Well, it, it kind of depends on what their resistance is. Um, here in Texas, there's a, the interesting phenomenon of the conservative Republican pagan. Um, and wow, 
yeah, it's it's a thing. It's a thing. And you know, more power to you. Uh there's really not there's a conversation to be had there. I am not the person to have that conversation. So mm-hmm. I kind of like, okay, that's your thing. But for people that are are you know, uncertain about um the ethics of it or they've they've kind of bought into the idea that um spiritual people aren't political, I point out that in this culture, being anything other than Protestant is inherently a political act that claiming a goddess, if you do that, is inherently political because it's it's pushing back against this system. Right. And sometimes people are into it and sometimes they're not. Um, I find that the people I talk to are often, they're intrigued by the idea, but they don't know how to sort of get into something that blends spirituality and and politics where they think that it's all curses. Right. <laughs> Which there's no space for mm-hmm. that, but you know, uh, and so I try and sort of have the conversation like at the full moon circles that I lead every month, which are, they're labeled women's circles, but they're open to cis women, trans women and non-binary people who find their kind of homes in women's central spaces. So, uh, they're really open spaces uh, that we, you know, since the election, we've talked a lot about how hard it is and how scary it is. And my, well, if you have all these skills, if you've learned meditation and energy work and energy healing and various kinds of magic, you know, why would you not use them mm-hmm. to get through what is such a hard time? And why would you not use them to, try and make the world better. And that usually people kind of get that, you know, mm-hmm. and then, then there's the bigger conversation about sort of what are you comfortable doing? You know, are you comfortable engaging in a mass binding of D- Donald Trump and his cronies as people all over did last night? Does, if, okay. If that kind of magic makes you uncomfortable, like is, um, work for people that are going to be harmed by the, policies is is that ethically okay for you or you know are you okay doing coordinated prayer for the people at standing rock you know there there are all these sort of points of entry right Uh, and i think that when you kind of meet people where they are uh, it becomes something that's less scary and a lot of them i think realize that they've already been doing basically magical activism they just didn't think about it that way you know, it's not just about right. casting a, a spell so that an election mm-hmm. goes out the way you want it. Although, man, I wish more of us had done that, let me tell you. Um, <laughs> but, you know, just, just putting it out there, y'all. But, you know, there are, there's mm-hmm. so much um, that the skills that we develop as part of these spiritual paths that kind of go under the pagan umbrella, there's so much that we learn how to do that can be used to sort of better the world and uh, create a a more just place that I, I don't know why we wouldn't do it. It seems, seems silly to me. I've, I've been very fascinated. um, And I've been following the buzz around the binding ritual that Michael Hughes put together, uh, the Mm -hmm. mass working that uh, folks, um, I guess the plan was to start it uh, last night or the wee Mm -hmm. hours of this morning. And it's, it's there's been a lot of debate around it, and I I just you know I've just been kind of sitting back eating popcorn, um, 
really being fascinated by how heated it is. You know, you have people Mm -hmm. coming on very strongly uh, who adhere to a very firm uh, interpretation of the rule of three and, um, and and then other people, you know, uh, saying, well, you know, uh, inaction is, 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 is just as bad. You know, how can you, how can you not defend yourself? How can you not, you know, there's an act of defense and, you know, and I'm like, well, technically, you know, I looked at the working. It was technically a binding to bind him from doing any harm to the country. Right. So I, right. I don't see that as, as harming anybody. Um, right. You know, but, but a lot of people have this knee-jerk reaction. Where do you think that knee-jerk reaction comes from? Oh, I've actually spent a lot of time thinking about this and talking with sort of my, my uh, immediate group that I practice with, my circle of co-priestesses and I talk about it a lot. It's respectability politics because um, people it, it really since you know, the late eighties and the early nineties, as pagans started to become more visible, we do think about like half the like public lectures or whatever that you've ever seen with somebody who's pagan, who's usually coming out of a Wiccan system because that's what's more, most visible. Like the first three things out of people's mouths are we don't worship Satan and we don't put hexes on people and we don't sacrifice animals. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this this move to um, make sure that people know that we're that we're nice and we don't do those evil things because you know we want we want to be accepted. And so I think it's absolutely right. respectability politics. Um, yeah. And yeah, there, there's a whole lot there. I'm kind of working on I'm working on something on that. Um, yeah. But do you hoping think it's going to come together? People- yeah, don't you think a lot of people have internalized it? Like they've really deep down inside bought into the the fear that if they lash out, let's say even in self defense, that they're going to be punished by the universe. Ab- absolutely, I think it's a holdover from Protestantism, especially. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, I hadn't really thought about it much because I came, I kind of came in through feminist craft, but was exposed to Wicca and kind of like, you know. The, the law of three was something I had kind of an uneasy relationship with, but I'm like, okay, whatever, you know, uh, when I was first practicing. And then I heard um, Phyllis Karat give a talk at Pagan Spirit Gathering in 2000 or 2001. And what she had to say about the law of three, she, she titled the, uh, the lecture, Why the Law of Three is Bullshit. Mm-hmm. And what she said was, you know, the idea that you would not do something because you want to avoid punishment. That is fear-based. And it's there is no place for fear. Christian. It is. Yeah. She's like, and there is, there's no place for fear. You know, if you choose not to put a hex on somebody because that is the wrong thing for you to do, mm-hmm. that's one thing. If the only reason you don't take a step is because you're afraid of being punished, that's not a righteous action. That is a fear-based action. Mm. And that hit me like a ton of bricks. I was like, every once in a while I hear something and I know it's true with a capital T. And I was just like, that's true. And it it resonated with something that um, Z Budapest said. And Z and I differ in opinions on almost everything. But something that she said once um, was that a witch that can't hex can't heal because it's the same magic. Mm -hmm. And that was also one of those things that struck me that that's true. You know, that we have to use our our tools and if you know we're going to not do something 
simply because we're afraid somebody's going to slap our hand, then this is not a liberatory path. And I showed up for the liberation. You know, I stayed for, for the mysticism, but I showed up for the liberation. And so I respect, you know, if there are people that they take law three very seriously and they don't want to do things, you know, you have to square that with yourself. However, but right. don't tell me that I need to follow your your ethics, because um, my goddess would be really upset with me if I had all the tools to defend myself and I just rolled over and showed my belly because I was afraid. Yeah, it's um, yeah. I mean, I keep going back to, in my mind, isn't this just another? Isn't just a repackaging of turn the other cheek? And mm-hmm. yeah, honestly. Spiritual level, yes, I think there are times where turning the other cheek is appropriate, but I think that the philosophy of turning the other cheek has become a tool of oppression yes. by teaching people to submit to authority. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think I see, especially in the the circles, forgiving the pun, that I move in, um, they tend to be made up of largely marginalized people. You know, I work with women and femmes and queer folks. Um, I work with a lot of people of color, which I know is not true in a lot of pagan settings, but it is in, in mine. Um, I work with a lot of people that have disabilities. I work with a lot of working class people. So they're people that are, are marginalized in a number of ways. And so to then say, oh, you should just turn the other cheek is a way of kind of keeping people down. It's respectability. And, you know, like, why you wouldn't fight back with everything that you have if you see yourself or the people that you care about in clear and present danger is, is completely, I just don't get it. And it doesn't square with what I, as an anthropologist know of magical traditions around the world, they're powerful weapons Mm. of resistance for many people. And the fact that um, especially in a Wiccan framework, which is largely white, largely privileged, Folks, um, it, it is no uh, mystery to me why that comes with those sort of upper middle class ethics. Right, because if it's right, I see what you're saying. Because if it's a demographic of people who, other than belonging to a, a very minority religion, are are very privileged and and really haven't had a taste of oppression. Absolutely. And I I think, you know, here in the U.S., we do have a lot of um, pagans that are working class folks, but, you know, Wicca as a structure came out of some very class privileged British circles. And so that's how that structure has come down. Um, It's interesting because in my research, I found that, man, white, white pagans especially like to believe that they're oppressed for being pagan. And that's not really true. (laughs) Um, we might experience discrimination, but we're not, we don't, we don't experience, uh, you know, societal, systemic, uh, religious bigotry. Um, what we experience is on a very individual level in most, most uh, times. But even then, people aren't always willing to sort of engage with these larger structures. You know, they're, they want to yeah. hide behind that. And and there seems to be this dialogue between two uh, very deep roots of modern witchcraft. You know, there's the the British traditional Gardnerian uh, tradition, which is very middle class, upper middle class, white. Um, and then there's um, Araria, Charles Leland's mm-hmm. work, the um, 
you know, the, the Strega, the Dianic tradition, which, um, you know, in, in, in you know, this, this, the whole mythos around Oradia is all about social justice and yes. all about activism and all about mm-hmm. taking back our power from those who either are oppressing us or would oppress us mm-hmm. if we let them. Yes. I think that's a tension that we see, you know, a, a great deal. Um, even in people who wouldn't necessarily right away tell you they trace their lineage to either of those strains. It's, it's there in the way that it's come down through the culture. Um, right. And it's been really, right. really fascinating um, to look at, you know, basically right after the election, we started seeing articles about what witches can teach us about resistance and particularly yeah. looking at, you know, queer young people of color who were, using witchcraft as resistance and how witches in particular have become very quickly this sort of symbol of how we stand up uh, to Trump and to everything that goes with it. Because spoiler alert, a lot of the things that are happening under Trump were still, were already happening in this culture before he was yeah. elected. You know, racism and sexism and transphobia and homophobia did not just show up on November 9th. I hate to tell people, but you know, this is longstanding. Uh, and it's been, it kind of took, took me aback a little bit to see all the even mainstream media coverage of things like, you know, the, the binding ritual that happened last night. And that was a headline on the BBC this morning. <laughs> you know, wow. So yeah. Right. Right? It got a lot. It is all over the place. And then everyone's running. You know, you have people you know, saying, oh, this is the greatest thing ever, and people saying, oh, this is horrible. And then today I woke up, and I saw this blog post, um, and I don't follow it, but uh, David Griffin, uh, Rosicrucian Imperator of, uh, I guess, his flavor of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, I guess he and his folks um, – uh, among them witch queen Leslie McQuaid They did a um, Basically they're bragging About successfully blocking um, the, the Michael Hughes working last night And they, they discussed The uh, sacred uh, Religious marriage between <clears throat> Donald And the spirit of the nation And how that They're oh. standing up in defense Of that mm. sacred of that sacred bond. And I, I was quite shocked actually, um, you know, to, to even see that. And, and some of the things mm-hmm. in the way this blog post was written are actually quite unkind. Uh, mm-hmm. I quote some moron in the witch community recently got the really stupid idea to curse and bind the president of the United States. Um, so just the level of dismissiveness and, uh, uh, lack of maturity in that one sentence alone um, is really fascinating to me. Um, yeah. You know, that that someone who, uh, you know, belongs to this tradition and is allegedly very high up in this tradition, um, it's just not what I would expect. I would have expected something much more mm-hmm. thoughtful, something much more spirituality-based. And from what I mm-hmm. know of the Hermetic Order, I used to study Hermeticism. I mean, I was expecting a much more spiritual message. Mm-hmm, than mm-hmm. what they put forth. Um, well, and there is uh, something that, that my 
circle priestesses and I have talked about, uh, especially I've seen since 9-11, some sort of, in some circles, some kind of weird adoption of like nationalist language, like this idea that there's a sacred marriage between the president and the nation. Like I get super uncomfortable anytime I'm in a working and people invoke Columbia as the patron goddess of the U.S. Mm-hmm. Because we take that symbol of the goddess of Columbia, but like, hello, genocide, hello, colonialism. It makes me so uncomfortable. And um, what about the spirit of the land itself? What about, you know, Turtle right. Island? I mean, that living spirit and the ancestors of, of the, the, the nations who were here. I, it's, I'm with you on that. It's, it's awkward. Yeah. yeah. It's super uncomfortable. Um, and you know, it's like ultimately, like people are going to do what they're going to do, and I just, you know, I don't participate in those workings. But it's, um, I think it's part of a larger kind of push for especially white folks to um, prove what good Americans we are by adopting kind of this jingoistic, patriotic language. Um, but I think that we need to interrogate it a lot more closely. You know, if we're going to be doing work for justice. And especially, you know, I think about, I was really involved with Standing Rock. I was actually the person who broke that story for most of the people on my Facebook feed last summer when nobody was talking about it. I was sharing stuff from Mm -hmm. little bitty reservation newspapers that I follow online because that's my home. And, you know, I mostly followed a lot of these newspapers for like local news and wildlife pictures, right? But that's what Standing Rock. And I had so many people tell me they wouldn't have known anything was happening there all last summer if they didn't follow me, uh, which I'm like, well, that probably says something about how much time I'm spending on social media, but okay. Uh, and so, you know, I think if we're going to talk about justice, we have to think about things like when we invoke very colonialist symbols at the same time that a lot of us are quite honestly appropriating Native spirituality, what does that do to what it is we think that we're doing? Um, you know, that I knew pagans that went up to Standing Rock and basically acted like stereotypical white people and were asked to leave, you know, because they didn't yeah. know anything about Native culture they, mm-hmm. um, and about Lakota culture in particular. Uh, so you know, that's, I think, the other piece of it is, you know, recognizing that if we're going to be involved in anything political here in the U S we have to grapple with, you know, the history of, of settler colonialism and of ongoing uh, brutality towards indigenous people and a legacy of slavery and ongoing brutality towards African-American and black people and towards immigrants. And, and we have to grapple with that sort of wrap up the same sort of scary white nationalism in pagan symbolism. That's a conversation Susan, lots of people no. don't want to have. <laughs> yeah, Susan, and, and forgive me if this seems a little off topic, but it, it seems like some of the things you said have kind of like evoked some of these thoughts. Um, and, and maybe I'm crazy, but sometimes I wonder if there is an element of a psychic wound among uh, the white community, a lack of identity, a search for identity, Um, especially in today's day and age where I think most folks are aware of 
you know, the, the genocide and, and broken treaties and, of course, slavery. And, and I wonder if there's a certain amount of denial, uh, uh, beca- you know, not because they deny that it's true, but because they can't – there's a reluctance to accept the weight of that reality. And so there's I, I... An, an urge to create this alternate identity and to hide in, in this nationalism as, uh, out of defensiveness. Part of it, and I, I, I talk about it a lot um, in the college courses I teach. That, you know, when, cause believe me, I had a really hard time with this stuff too. When I, and I, I mean, I still do. This is ongoing, right? But the first time somebody looked me in the face and said, "But you know, you're you're complicit in what happened with slavery, and you are complicit in what happens in this country." And I did the whole, like, my people didn't show up until 1880. I wasn't even here when you had your little war. And, like, did the standard, like, hashtag not all white people tantrum, right? And then, thankfully, instead of smacking me, somebody sat me down and said, but you benefit from this system. It is not your fault. You know, this isn't about assigning individual guilt. This is about recognizing that this is a system and it is screwed up and it is exploitative and that people who look like you benefit from it. And now that you know, you have to take it on. And making that shift from thinking that, you know, racism was something that individuals do when they throw racist slurs and instead think about it as something that, like, this entire society is built on the back of indigenous and enslaved people. And that no matter what, um, I benefit from that. You know, I grew, up, I grew up on land that was settled under the Homestead Act. And that doesn't make me a bad person. Um, it means that I have a responsibility to face that and to help dismantle the system. And I think a lot of people don't want to take that on. I think that's the same reason why a lot of pagans get really caught up in like the, the false story that, oh, well, the Irish were enslaved too, or they don't want to identify as white. I ran into that in my, um, my dissertation research when I asked for my demographics. And almost nobody said they were white. People broke it down as like 16% Scottish, uh, 5% Cherokee. Like they didn't want to claim that identity um, because, I mean, a lot of reasons, but I think because it doesn't feel like an identity. It feels, you know, with the way in which whiteness is structured in this culture, um, people are sort of encouraged to lose uh, connection to their ancestral cultures. Um, there's sort of this construction of, of whiteness as being the thing that causes uh, and is at the root of racism and uh, colonialism and all that. And people want to distance themselves from that because it is, it's a lot to carry. And, you know, we talk a lot about the historical trauma of colonialism and the historical trauma of slavery, but I think that there, there is, something that sort of happens to um, to white folks, and I'm really interested in, especially among white Southerners, uh, that there is some sort of, like, chasm there that people haven't figured out how to, how to grapple with. Um, and I think, honestly, like, we're seeing it in what happened with the election and the, the rise of, like, white nationalism and the you know, very open expression of a lot of uh, racist and sexist and otherist ideologies that you know people sort of feel like it's safe to say in public again, um, and people are 
kind of having to grapple with the idea that the only image that's given to them of sort of a white identity is this sort of like white power stuff, which is super scary for a lot of people. <laughs> and so, and it should be because it's, it's scary and terrible, but like, that's what's given. Yeah. Um, and then there's this other thing in the middle where you're, you know, you're kind of told, well, your ancestors and your, your people did all this stuff. And then we're not, because nice people don't talk about race in this culture. We don't talk about how we grapple with that. And I, I think like we've got to have that conversation um, but we have to get past the just really deeply ingrained uh, respectability that nice people don't talk about this. Mm-hmm. If, if we're going to well, push back, I'm sorry, Michael, you go ahead. Well, I was going to say, let's go ahead and take a little bit of a little bit of a break and play some music, and then we'll come back and talk some more about a few different things. Um, I'm going to we're gonna go ahead and play Spar Rhythm I Am Pagan. Awesome. I am pagan and I'm proud. I am pagan, gonna shout it loud. I am pagan, want the world to know that I follow the goddess cause she rocks my soul. Don't need your Bible.
And that was Bar Rhythm, I Am Pagan. It's a very lovely song. And let's make sure we have everyone back live. Yay. Oh, my gosh. So we were actually having a very nice discussion in the green room while we were waiting for the song. Matthew was uh, expressing some concerns he has from uh, one of his groups. And Dr. Susan was uh, giving us a little bit of advice on it. yeah, I'll frame it. I'll, I'll frame it a little bit. Um, and I, I was asking Susan, um, you know, for maybe a little bit of advice. Um, you know, in 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 my community, it, it certainly appears that the the majority of of my pagan community do feel that uh, this new administration is a threat to the environment and a threat to the rights of LGBT people and people of color. Um, however, there, there are some members who strongly support uh, this administration, and, and these are folks who aren't, um, you know, they're not white supremacists, they're not uh, nationalists. Um, you know, I've, I've tried to understand their psychology and where they're coming from, I'm getting pushback, and basically they're saying to the community, if, if this community is going to be political and so vocal and active, then, then there's not a place for me here. Um, Susan, how, do, can you offer any strategies for how to deal with that? I mean, these, these are good people. These are thoughtful people. I mean, is there any hope? Well, or? I come from the standpoint that if you – I mean, Donald Trump told us exactly who he was. And if you were okay casting that vote, I'd, I'm calling BS on when you tell me you're not a racist. Because if you're okay with a racist and a sexist and a rapist in the White House, you're complicit. Period. Like this but isn't they, a this but isn't. They, but these are and I agree with you. But these people say that those things are completely untrue and that the liberal media just made that up. And that's usually the point at which I'm like, you know what? There's the door. Um, because if there are people who are unwilling, who will in, in the same breath tell me how they're not manipulated by the news and then throw things like the liberal media, you got to go. You got to go. Like, for me personally, there's no common ground there um, because there are people who are unwilling to be swayed by evidence um, and are unwilling to take responsibility for a choice that they made that's going to harm millions of people. Like, and this is the first election in my life that I felt that way. Um, you know, if we differ over tax policy and over tariffs and stuff, we can talk. But, you know, if you're telling me that you can't believe that you voted for a guy, but you don't believe the things that he actually said he was going to do, like, what the hell is wrong with you? Like, it's not like we didn't know, you know, um, or it's not like this is all things that people are said. No, like he said these things. I'm going to ban Muslims. He said these. Yeah, things. he said um, those things. Absolutely. Said those things. So I, and then they you know, deny I'm it when like, we show it to them. Right. It's like it's all very 1984, and I think that it's it, you know there's probably a lot of guilt there that people don't want to believe it, but you did, and like you know it's 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 hard. Like I have I have had to cut people out of my life that have been friends I've been friends with them for 30 years because ultimately like the things that they've said since this election I was like you don't think I'm a person you don't think that the Muslim couple that lives across the hall you don't think that they're people and I can't have you 
in my life. And, and that's hard. Like, and I don't, you know, I don't know. Um, normally I'm pretty good at sort of talking to people about, you know, let's, let's, let's talk about, you know, maybe why you don't think that same sex marriage should be legal or, you know, what's your issue with abortion? Like I can talk to people that have thought these things out rationally, but that's just not what I'm seeing in most places. And people are just so okay with facing up to what this means, you know, that, that, um, you can look at what's happening in the country and what happened at the airports, you know, when they detained people, you know, here in Dallas, they, they detained a five-year-old child for 17 hours, a child who was a U.S. citizen because one of his parents is Syrian. You know, if you can look at that and tell me that that's okay, like I got no time. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, it it is hard when you have pre-existing relationships with people. I don't mean to be flip about it. Um, but I also think that some ideas and some beliefs are so odious that people should be ostracized for having them. And um, I, it's sort of like, I don't, you know, when the, when the people next to my friends in, in uh, Portland put up their Nazi flag the day after the election, that's not a first oh amendment issue to me. Well, let's, you know, um, let's take a little, go ahead. Um, I, I just wanted to uh, turn the steering wheel a little bit. Um, spiritual activism. Let's say uh, for those of us, who want to do something, you feel like we really want to do something, but we're not sure what, um, what mm-hmm. suggestions do you have? Well, you know, I think that the first thing that you can do is, because there's so much happening, <laughs> um, that you need to, like, I'm not going to say what you need to do. My advice would be to pick one or two of the many, many issues we are facing and decide that's where you want to put your energy because if you are trying to take it all on, it's just not something that any, any one person can do. So um, for me, I do information aggregation, and then the things that I show up for are gender justice, and that includes LGBT issues and uh, racial justice. That's, that's where I put most of my energy, where I need to go put my body on the line. That's where I go. You know, for people for whom maybe – the attacks on the environment are more important. Like that's, that's what you engage with. So I think that that's really key. Um, Once you sort of figure that out, I I think you figure out where your point of entry is like, what can you do? You know, for me, I'm an educator. So aggregating information, offering community-based classes on intersectional feminism, writing letters to the editor. Those are all things that I can do. Um, I have, other friends who are healthcare workers, and so they have uh, done some trainings for street medics, for people that are going to be down in person at rallies. Um, for some friends of mine that I've been talking about, they've got three or four activist friends who uh, live with chronic illness. And so going out and marching or standing for hours at a demonstration is not something that they can do, but they set up phone trees, they track legislation. So Think, you know, sort of knowing what your strengths are is really key and knowing what causes you want to work with. Um, and if you don't know, you know, there is a lot. I, I am really supportive of joining your local indivisible chapter or other progressive organizations because they often serve as kind of a clearinghouse for people that are 
interested in specific things. You know, if you're interested in working with electoral politics, that's a way to get in. If the ballot box doesn't do anything for you, you know, there are other on the ground causes you can get involved with. Um, And I, I think a lot of people think that to be doing activism, you've got to be out and holding a sign or shouting on the steps of the Capitol, but you know, having the conversations that we're having today, that's activism. You know, um, showing up and helping distribute food at your local food bank, like that is, you're being part of the system, being part of, part of the resistance. So, you know, to think broadly about what it means for you to be an activist and figure out what works for you and your situation, uh, I think it's, it's, it's where you have to start because otherwise it just seems so big. And there's, mm-hmm. there's so much to be done that there's so much to be done that sometimes you feel like you can't even start. And so finding a place to start is super, super important. You know, um, I'm trying to remember where I, I heard this or maybe I read it somewhere. Um, especially when, you know, after the election uh, happened and people were like, okay, what do we do? I remember there being discussions on just being visible, uh, yeah. like uh, being visible on social media, uh, mm-hmm. you know, start a blog, start a YouTube channel or something like that. Yes. For, you know, putting ourselves out there so people can see this is who we are. This is what we do. And this is what is affecting us on a daily basis. Yes. Yes. Um, I think it's really important. Um, art, however you define that, is super important. If you look at the, the way that art and, you know, um, I think about the hats. I know there's a lot of debate about the hats from the Women's March. Uh, but the fact is they were people who learned to knit and crochet and made these millions of hats um, as a way of trying to create a symbol. And I, I think often people sort of discount that, like, oh, you know, you have a YouTube channel, how many people watch it or whatever. But I think it's incredibly important um, for the people who can, especially the people who are, stand to be most affected by what is happening with this administration and with, with all the things that, all the social ills that predate the administration, right? Uh, if you have the ability to, to be visible, and not everybody does, if you have the ability yeah. to be visible, I think it's incredibly important. Um, I know it's something that a lot of um, my white queer friends have talked about is that, you know, we have this stigmatized identity, but we, it can be invisible if we want it to be. Um, it, we can hide behind our whiteness, but a lot of us are like, no, no, we need to be even more visibly queer now. <laughs> like it's really mm-hmm. important. Like we need to take that risk on because so many of our friends have marginalized identities that they can't hide and they get up and go out and are out there in the street. And so that's sort of like the least we can do. Uh, and there's been a lot of discussion about how you do that. You know, there's a lot of ways to do it, but uh, I, I think that simply being sort of loud and being willing to have the conversations you can have uh, and and do the work that you can is, is really important. Um, if only because you let people know they're not alone and that they're not like things aren't hopeless because it is mm. really easy to get sucked into the spiral of hopelessness right now. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It, it, well, and, yeah, you know, it, it is. 
Yeah, I'm sorry, say, speaking of that, no, sorry, but uh, speaking of that, you know, with everything that's going on, you know, people often extend themselves. I know uh, when they were detaining people at the DFW airport or D- DFW International Airport um, when the ban went into effect. Uh, I know you, Dr. Susan, were out there and protesting and whatnot, but you kind of split. I know because I'm your friend, you spread yourself very thin over the next few days after that. How do you stave off exhaustion from being out there and, you know, you know, doing what you can to, you know, make a change? You know, it's something that I'm even still figuring out um, because this is (laughs) unprecedented in my lifetime. So, you know, full disclosure, I'm still working it out. Uh, I have found that having a circle of people that can sort of uh, pass the burden is really important. Uh, during the DFW protest, you know, I was out there on that Saturday when everything happened and then was out there for many hours and then was here at my apartment, which is very close to the airport, you know, ha- had food and stuff for people. And the next morning when I woke up and there was a call for bodies, you know, I was, I can't, I like, I couldn't go. And I was trying to get psyched up to go. And one of my friends sent me a message and said, you were there yesterday. We'll be there for you today. And so just knowing that there was somebody who would kind of like stand in my place was really important. Um, But I've had to kind of try things out. What I find is working now is to remember all my good spiritual tools. So I, I use aromatherapy and I use stones to kind of keep my energy balanced. Um, I have to remind myself that this is not a momentary crisis. This is a long haul and that I'm not going to be able to do everything and be everywhere, but I am where I can be. And when I can't be someplace, I have to be honest with myself about it. Um, I take an hour every night now to read and I've been doing spiritual reading, which is on a practical level, it is get, gets me off social media earlier. So I'm not, you know, staring at Facebook and Twitter right up until the moment I go to bed. So it kind of calms my brain down on that level. And it also, I, I am reading feminist theology uh, that's very social justice focused and it helps to give me a long view and keep me, keep me in a hopeful place. Um, and I, also, and it's so hard for me, Michael, you know me, but I just try and unplug a couple times a week. I'm just like, I'm going to lay on my couch and I'm going to watch stupid television for an hour. And I'm not going to let myself feel guilty about that. I'm, you know, I'm going to going to get up from here and it's going to be all right. Um, because it is so easy to to spread yourself thin. And then because we are in for a long haul, you don't see the immediate wins. And we see a lot of losses to get uh, ho- really hopeless about it. Um, and I think that the more of us that are working and the more of us that are, are energy workers and spirit workers, um, you know, that can find that our role in the resistance is to support people and to have community healing places. I'm seeing things like um, community Reiki clinics for activists pop up. You know, as, as we do more of that together, I think that is 
not only gives an entry point for people that do that sort of healing work, but also allows us as a community to recharge. So trying to find that mutual support is, is key. And um, that, that piece, I think, has taken a little bit longer to come together, but it's coming together in a really beautiful way now. So we need to also remember to ask for those things and to know that you know, no one person is going to do this, um, that we're fighting against things that are, are longstanding and the, the battle is going to be long and that, that, that that's okay. Um, we just have to keep showing up. Would you say most of what we were just describing would also benefit when dealing with disappointment? Like uh, you, know, oh, yeah. you mentioned, you know, there will be losses, um, kind of like how what happened at Standing Rock. Um, yes. You know, I know a lot of people are taking that uh, loss very strongly, uh, but it's also galvanizing a lot of people to be a lot more active. But Yes. No, I think that's good because I, I watched the live stream of the uh, militarized police clearing out Standing Rock um, the other day. And, and my heart was just on the ground, you know, that this had been going on for so long and, you know, that the pipeline had been stopped and, you know, I thought we were going to have a win. And that was, it was, I mean, it was devastating for me to watch. I can't imagine for people that were there or had been spending time there or had family there, what that must've been like. And for, um, you know, for indigenous people, the, in in this country, that's just one more group of armed people clearing them out of a space that's theirs, and that's what that must be like. Is I mean, I can't even imagine. But I think using those skills and also um, being willing to sort of know that you're going to have a loss, um, but that a plan. Uh, makes a big difference because I, I know one of the first things that the Standing Art Tribe came out and said is that, you know, the camp was not the resistance. Like there's still stuff going on in court. There's there there are there's another front in this battle. Uh, so staying sort of tapped in and knowing where the next front is when there's been a a disappointment, knowing what the next thing is also helps. But using those good skills to you know, developing a way to kind of take care of yourself. Like I came home and I took a long shower with some sage scented soap and so I sat with my cats for a little bit and cried and was like, all right, like, you know, tomorrow's another day. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I, I think especially for people that are new, I've been seeing this a lot with um, people that are newly politicized post election is that they don't know how to deal with disappointment Um, because a lot of us, especially like we were raised white, if we were raised with a certain amount of class privilege, um, we have this idea that like right always wins, right? Like, like we're going to have a happy ending and that, you know, the police are here to help and, you know, that the system is in and of itself just, and, you know, that, we that Congress is set up as checks and balances. Like there's all those things that we sort of learn and what we're, a lot of us are seeing for the first time is that's not really the way the world works. And I, I think as, as hard as the individual disappointments are like the shattering of that illusion is super hard for people. 
and knowing what to do when sort of the way that you thought the world works proves that it's not the way the world works is something that you have to be gentle with yourself about. You know, um, you have to kind of recognize that that's what's going on and that, you know, you are having to grow and change in ways that are um, super painful, but are ultimately really freeing and that we have to have spaces to talk about that stuff. You know, I've seen a lot of um, really, you know, throughout the election cycle and then after the election with the uptick in racist violence, you know, a lot of, especially my white, my white friends saying, oh my gosh, like it's 2016, 2017, who have we become? And, you know, people of color and other marginalized people on the other side are kind of going, um, we've always been this, (laughs) like you just didn't notice it before. This is nothing, Mm. nothing new. Uh, This was all here before. You just didn't notice because your guy was in charge, but hello, let's wake up now. And watching people kind of grapple with the the shock that people that they know and love are, you know, racist or xenophobic or sexist and then grappling with their guilt about that and then trying to kind of deal with the daily, just deluge of that comes through the news. It's a lot for people to handle. Um, And people are really having to grapple with, not just the individual things are happening, but what does it mean to be American and what does this mean about our country? And um, it's, it's, that's a lot. Like last year was a tower year, y'all. <laughs> like everything comes, comes tumbling down. We, we, we had a major election in the middle of a Pluto retrograde. Like that's going to bring all your karma back, yo. All that, all those societal systems that are, you know, need to be shaken up. They're going to get shook. Uh, but it's a lot to live through. Yeah, it, a, it, oh it certainly is. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a lot. I mean, I tell people, like, you know, we spent most of last year with at least four planets in retrograde all at once. Like, the world was going to change one way or the other. Um, In, and, uh, Dr. Susan, um you know what you when you're just talking about how last year was a is that a tower year? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Is that, in- is that I was gonna say that immediately brought something to my mind that I one of the other podcasts I listen to is the Modern Witch podcast. I don't know if you oh, listen yeah. to uh-huh. it or if Matthew listens to it, but they were actually talking about. Um, some sort of divination or prophecy that someone did 10 years ago, 10, 15 years ago or something like that. Um, how uh, now I, w- I wish I'd taken notes now, but it was one of the most recent podcasts. I want to say it was the one on Aradia. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. I haven't listened and to that it, one was, it was a very, it was a very interesting um, one to listen to, but They were talking about how someone in the pagan community, and I wish I knew who the like knew more about this person, but apparently they're actually a pretty big um, prophetic person or psychic. And they said that our country was going almost like on a roller coaster. Uh, We were reaching a peak, but we were on our way down to 
uh, on our way over that peak and about to kind of get to an area where we're going to be a lot of infighting, <laughs> unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, you know, when you said that tower, that made it pop in my head. And, you know, if you're a listener and when I, I would, would recommend checking out that podcast, it's the Modern Witch podcast with Devin Hunter and Storm Fairy Wolf. And it was one of their last ones they did with, I want to say it was the Aradia episode. Yeah, I need, I need to go listen to that. It's, in, it's downloaded. Because um, I, I, and, you know, one of the things that, that um, has really struck me, and it's something that you said, Michael, about being visible, is the number of people who sense the election and sense sort of going, oh my God, like we have to do something about this. Like, you know, the number of, excellent podcasts and excellent blogs and excellent Facebook pages uh, and websites that are out there to try and help people build the skills to, um, to resist and to take care of ourselves and to understand what's happening. Uh, I think has been, it's like amazing. I, I, the joke in our house is, man, I love living in the future. Don't you? And <laughs> being able to, sort of see how people are using uh, new technology to uh, well, not so new anymore, but, you know, modern technology to um, kind of address what's happening. Um, and, you know, the points of entry that people have chosen are just fascinating to me. Um, I'm a big fan of, I'm going to give them a, I'm going to give them a free commercial to, to quote, she who will not be named. Um, I really like the Washington Post puts out a weekly podcast called Can He Do That? And it's oh. about the American presidency. And so they've looked at things like, well, okay, Ken not just not release his tax returns. Um, and although, you know, the Washington Post has its own leaning, like it's a very fair-minded, um, well-researched podcast. And I, I feel like for those that are just looking at this, everything that's happening going like, how is this happening? And what, I don't even know if that's legal or not. And this is so confusing and it's such a morass. I highly recommend that. Um, I spent 10 years working for a presidential historian and I have learned so much about the inner workings of the American presidency just as an office in the month that I've been listening to this. So, you know, I highly recommend if you are kind of facing all this and going, I know I want to do something. I don't know what I can do one of the first places to start is just to educate yourself on what's happening. Because if, if nothing else, you're then prepared to have a conversation with somebody about, well, actually, you know, there is no law that says the president has to release their taxes. You know, and here's why. And let's, and then we can talk about that, about, you know, do we think that is something that should be a law and what does it mean if we don't know? And, you know, it's, and I think it conversations with people that might be uneasy with what's happening, but aren't really ready to get into a like super ideological conversation. Um, you can have a kind of fact-based conversation with people and you can also then make your decisions about what, what kind of work you want to do from a place that's not just pure freaking out and the world is a dumpster fire, but instead from a, okay, here's something that I know about and I don't think that's okay. And here are the steps that we can take to address it. Um, information is always power. So any anytime you can arm yourself with more information. 
what are some other um, news outlets that you would recommend besides that podcast? Or uh, and, and I don't know if that be a news outlet, media outlet. I really like because uh, on top of everything that's happening nationally, uh, the Texas legislature is meeting. They meet once every two years, and the stuff that's being proposed to the legislature is like, woo! Um, I actually read this really great piece from, oh, it's from the New Yorker this week about the Texas Organizing Project and how it says that actually Texas is a good model for the rest of the country about how to live under and resist a super conservative, almost neo-fascist regime, because we've been doing it since 1995, y'all. Um, so I, 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 it's really good. I'll, I'll send you a link and you can, can uh, maybe put it on your Facebook page. Um, but yeah, I pay a lot of attention to what's happening here in Texas. So for me, uh, I listen to the Texas Standard, which runs on NPR, but you can get it through the podcast. Um, and so if you're in Texas, I highly recommend the Texas standard. Uh, you know, if you're in another state, you know, find if there's a, either a newspaper that comes out of your capital or other reporting on your local NPR station that covers what's happening in your local government, uh, because a lot of what we're seeing happening on the national level is something that you can best affect change for on the local. You know, I mean, those people that are in the House and the Senate, they were elected on the state level. They work for you. You know, if you don't like what they're doing, find out how to get them out. I like that a lot. Um, I tend to read pretty widely. Um, I like the Washington Post a lot and the New York Times a lot. And I know that there are people who say they're fake news, but whatevs. Um, I look at the BBC because it's interesting to see how this is all being covered from overseas. Um, I also listen to and follow The Intercept. And I read Truth Out, which is very left-leaning, but does break a lot of stories that not everybody does. I have a friend who um, is a political reporter for Truth Out. So I read that. Um, and I actually am amazed how much I get through Twitter. Um, I didn't really use my Twitter account much before all of this, but uh, that seems to be where news breaks. Um, I like the Associated Press and Reuters a lot. They're mainstream um, and I get a lot of my analysis through um, The Atlantic, although I have problems with The Atlantic. Sometimes they print some things on the basis of wanting to hear both sides of the story that they, print, they, they have printed some really incendiary things. But that's, that's the beauty of free press. Um, the New Yorker, and I read Mother Jones, even though that is, again, very left-leaning, but for investigative reporting, um, especially around issues of race. And they've been doing some really good stuff with the prison industrial complex. Um, it's good stuff. So I don't believe anybody wholeheartedly. You know, I try and take in news from a multitude of sources and learn how to evaluate them, um, which is something that we all need to do. Um, something that I see actually, unfortunately, a lot of pagans do is um, share stuff uncritically and, that kind of drives me a little bit batty. I'm like, if we're going to make fun of the people on the far right for believing fake news, we need to not be sharing stuff from David Wolf's Facebook page. Um, but, you know, learning how to sort of, like, let's just not do that. Um, let's let's not save stuff from, from U.S. Current, please. Uh, but there is so much information that learning how to sort of take in information about the same story from multiple sources and kind of synthesize it 
is is key um, and learning how to to recognize what is well written and what is is reputable um, it's hard with the internet because people can anybody can put anything on the internet um, but if you can learn how to trace it back down to its yeah, that, that's a good thing and a bad thing. Anyone can put anything on the internet. It's a bad thing, but it's also a good thing. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. Absolutely. I mean, you look at the things that that broke um, through through the internet. I mean, the the Trump dossier broke through BuzzFeed, right? So, mm-hmm. it's really important to to know that that stuff is out there. Um, I well, the first thing that I did the day after the election was write a check to my local national public radio station. Uh, because I know there are many people who think that NPR is a liberal conspiracy, but I like to say that facts have a little bias. So uh, I wanted to support that, not just on the national level, but um, the local reporting is so good. And a lot of people don't realize that uh, many of the things on NPR, maybe you aren't in the car during you know, whatever news show you want, but you can usually get them through their website or as a podcast. Um, and uh, we actually even get the Rachel Maddow show as basically as a podcast and we listen to it the next day. So you look for multiple ways to consume information. Uh, it can be really easy to get overwhelmed and it is okay to also listen to stuff like Pagan's Tonight Radio and listen to, you know, funny podcasts and things like that. But find, find what you can um, so that you're getting your information from multiple streams. Um, I know it's a lot. It's a lot, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, my brain is so full. <laughs> my brain is like an internet browser with three hundred tabs open all the time. Let me oh tell my you. gosh! <laughs> gosh! <sighs> and I know Dr. Susan from um, and from my undergrad and her graduate work. So yes, I. Ooh, I I've experienced Dr. Susan on many levels. So, <laughs> um. <laughs> is there something is, is you want to elaborate? Or make no. <laughs> Let me get the picture. Um, but, um, oh my gosh. Um, I'm trying to think. I had a quite, I had something I was going to say, and I cannot remember. Um, Oh, you, you know when you know when we started the episode, you were talking about how you came into um, come on mouse work um, paganism through feminist craft, um, mm-hmm. and because that was fairly political movement and workings. Mm-hmm. How would you? I mean, how would you say would be best for us as Men who love men, you know, because we, you know, we are a queer-focused podcast, uh, mm-hmm. but we do kind of focus more on um, the male identity. Um, right. How would you say? How how would you recommend we can get more active in the political political climate and you know do our best to help make a change uh, for the better. I think that's a great question. Um, and I, I think that there is a good model. If you look at a lot of the writing around feminist craft, um, 
the the ways in which they've taken a lot of the writers have have taken issues that you know facing women and incorporated them into their sort of magical workings. So you know, I thinking just off the top of my head uh, with what's happening around the uh, the uh, not repealing um, rescinding of the guidelines uh, for protection of trans students under Title IX. You know that that is that's an issue that I think people can, can learn about and can sort of incorporate that into their spiritual activism. Like I'm uh, going to be doing some um, protective work for trans students at the campuses where I, I work. Um, and so I think that that's, that's one way um, is to kind of, as I was saying, decide um, the issues that are most important for you personally, and if you have a working group um, that you want to focus on, um, and learn as much as you can about them. Um, I think one of the things that, that often happens with sort of um, gay politics, and I use that term intentionally, um, in the U.S. is that a lot of sort of gay politics are the politics of gay, cisgendered, white, able-bodied men. Um, and you see that in a lot of the criticism of groups like the Human Rights Campaign. Um, and so I think learning more about uh, what's kind of happening with those organizations, what they're doing well, um, and what they're not doing well, and getting partnered with groups that are trying to address those, uh, kind of those gaps are really important. Um, I have been doing a lot of research for uh, another podcast that I'm on about um, groups that are led by um, queer and trans and queer trans people of color and, and sort of how they're addressing the interlocking oppressions of homophobia and transphobia and racism. So I think that that's super important. Um, I know definitely like I, I'm a white cis able-bodied queer gal <laughs> And when I go into spaces that are about queer politics, it's often like it's about the nice, the nice gays and lesbians, but the the bi and the trans and the pan and uh, th those folks are over there, like they're probably not even in the room. Um, so I think sort of learning about that is really key. Um, and you know, something that a lot of my queer friends and I've been talking about is that, you know, people that are, that look like me um, are really not the ones that are being targeted by a lot of the anti LGBT things that are happening in culture and, and within this administration. And so it's my job to be able to stand up for the people that are being targeted. Um, the queer folks of color, the trans folks of all colors, um, people that are gender nonconforming, and sort of moving beyond um, what mainstream queer organizations are often concerned about, which, I mean, marriage rights are important and visibility is important, but let's also talk about healthcare. Let's talk about uh, workplace protections. Let's talk about all these other things that need to sort of be happening um, and that there are people in our community that are super vulnerable that are, don't always get kind of invited to the table. Um, so it's definitely one place to look at. I think that um, there is a really interesting and important opportunity for men who want to do it 
to push back against this kind of really toxic masculinity that's on display in the administration right now um, and is something that has really come up through a lot of uh, the particularly white working class men um, who support the administration. Um, you know, when you have like the lawmaker in Oklahoma that set up and said that pregnant women are just hosts for a fetus, like that's frightening when you have, you know, men who um, think that we should roll back protections for people on who are predominantly women um, who are sexually assaulted on campus, you know, this sort of like big swaggering uber sexist dude. Um, I, I think that men have a great opportunity to open up discussions about sort of what it means to be a man and um, pushing back against this, this narrative of this particular flavor of masculinity of these men who want to step on anybody who doesn't look like them. Um, that's a big bite to chew, <laughs> but I definitely think it's, it's one that we, we can, you know, start to talk about, um, you know, and I, I think a lot is also just determined by, um, you know, what it is, that is of concern to the community that you talk, that you talk to, you know, I think that it's, it's super important within a pagan context for uh, men who love men and queer men and gender nonconforming men to be super visible um, because that's not something that always is visible in our community. And I think that that has the, the opportunity to um, shift things within the pagan community Um and maybe get people more politicized around some of this stuff and, and get people talking about it um, and starting to think about how we might do things different or do things better. Yeah. Just leave, just yeah. leave that bomb right there in the middle of the room. Yep. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, yeah, chewing yeah, on, we're chewing on that big bite. Yeah. yeah. It's a know, big the, bite. The reason I ask that, yeah. Is the reason I ask that is because uh, Dr. Susan and I have had conversations in the past where we've talked about how, um, like, in the pagan community, you know, when you know it, it does tend to be a lot of uh, goddess and fem feminine, the, the sacred feminism uh, centric. And Dr. Susan has told me in the past a story about how. M after she's done like a ritual that was for women, she'd have men come up to her and be like, I would love to do this. Uh, can you do this for me or help me do this? You know what I'm talking about, Dr. Susan? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I did um, a women's ritual at a festival, I guess about 15 years ago now, and there were a bunch of men in the community who were super angry, actually. Uh, and they said, well, why can't we have a men's ritual? And I was like, well, but you can, but I'm not going to write it for you because I'm a woman. Like, I can't do this for you. Like, I'll help you if you need help. But yeah, there, I think there's um, often a, a fear and it, it's mirrored in the, from the larger culture. I think that when things are centered on the experiences of women or centered on the experience of, of queer folks or, um, 
centered on the experiences of people of color that automatically means that they're sort of anti all these other people. Uh, it's like, no, mm-hmm. it's like, this was a women's ritual. It wasn't a let's all get together and talk about yeah, that well, we hate men ritual. Yeah, well, I think it's I think it taps into something that they call micro inequities. And whenever you have something that is, you know, designed around uh, empowering or benefiting a, a particular subset, then those who are not members of that subset are, are it's only human, are going to feel slightly slighted. Um, is it rational? Is it fair? Is it right? Probably not. But it's, it's, it's natural. Um, but I think, Susan, I think your response is the perfect one. You know, yes, you do have permission to do that. And no, I'm not going to do it for you because I'm a woman. And <laughs> if you want to create this men's ritual, you as a man are empowered to do that. It's, it's similar. I've had um, some women come to me and say, well, is there a, an unnamed path for women who love women? And I said, you know, yes, there is. The minute you start talking to the ancestors of women who love women and start crafting that path, mm-hmm. I'm not, it's not my place. It's not my place right. to go on a shamanic journey to the ancestors of women who love women and say, you know, give me the teachings so that I can go be the missionary to the women who love women. I mean, I'd be such an, a jerk if I did that. Right? Um, but I think it comes down to something that I've identified with a lot of folks, and that is a lack of, I, I think it's a lack of sense of worthiness. I think that a lot of people feel that they don't have permission to write Absolutely. a ritual, that they don't have Absolutely. permission to create a tradition. And I think more than ever, if, if you know, human, humanity is changing, the world is changing, it's never going to be the same. More than mm-hmm. ever, we have to create new rituals and new traditions that are going to feed us and sustain us in this new age. Um, Absolutely. And, and yeah. So, I mean, I, I kind of feel like, you know, anything we can do to empower people, encourage them and say, you know, yes, you, you do this. You are, you are blessed. You are holy. You have a right to mm-hmm. be inspired and follow that inspiration. Absolutely. And I, you know, I think that that's, Something that's super interesting about the the role of witches and magical practitioners in, you know, kind of the the resistance right now is that, you know, somebody sat down and put together that binding ritual, you know, and yeah. I loved re- reading his his post. He said, you know, here's some things that people have submitted. Like here's the ritual as I wrote it, and then there was a root worker that said, well, you could do this kind of binding if you wanted, and then there was somebody from another order that said, Oh, if you can't get an orange, orange candle, use a baby carrot. And you know, it was this whole thing. That sort of, you know, it, it was amazing. Um, yeah. You know, here's so there was somebody from, I think kind of a chaos tradition that said, you know, instead of at the end saying, so mote it be as you're burning Trump's picture, you know, yell, you're fired. You know? I love that one. That was my favorite. <laughs> I, uh, I totally did that. I thought that was brilliant, you know, and there, then, and they, you know, he like laid it out. And he said, but, you know, do it in a way that makes sense for you. And so right. it, and it wasn't like he went and looked back at all the books that include rituals on how to bind the neo-fascist president, right? He had to come up with that, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. He had to take what he knew and, and come up with it, um, you know, or the people that have created hand-fasting rituals for uh, same-sex couples or, or polyamorous 
uh, triads or groups of people. You know, we have to be empowered to sort of create for what we need. And I think, you know, there's a lot of that happening in the spiritual activism I'm seeing with people now is that this is unprecedented time. And so we have to create rituals for this time and we have to be empowered to do it. Like, you know, the, uh, we have to be able to imagine a different world if we're going to create it. Right. And I, I'm loving seeing what people are sort of coming up with, even if there are things that don't fit with my own spiritual practice. I love that people are thinking about how can we take these skills that we have and use them uh, going forward. Like there's a friend of mine in Chicago who does archangel cleaning. She does limpias and she offers, I think it's every Tuesday and every Thursday. If you are an organizer and activist and you come into her, into her shop, she will do an energetic cleansing for you for free. Wow. Because people need that, you know? Wow. And that's, that's something that she's decided, like, that's going to be her resistance. Is she's going to, these people that are down on the front line, she's going to use what she knows how to do and work with them. And she happens to be in a part of, of Chicago that's had a lot of violence, a lot of police violence, lots of stuff. So those community organizers are taking on a lot. And that's something that, that she can do. So I, I love it that, you know, but, but I, I think that people do need to feel empowered you know, that it's not that you know if it doesn't come out of a tradition that's however many years old that it's somehow less real that you can you can create something right new and that you yeah. don't necessarily need anybody's permission you have permission um yeah. you know, it, it, oh, I, I was just going to say Let's go ahead and do some last-minute questions. Um, you know, if you have any last-minute questions, Matthew, and then if Dr. Susan has any closing comments, because, you know, this is going to end up being almost a two-hour episode. And I, I think this is our <laughs> episode today. Um, I do not have any questions, but, Susan, thank you so much. I, I hope you come and chat with us again, because I feel like I've learned so much. Thank you. I'd oh, love to come back. She's a fount of knowledge. She is a fount <laughs> of knowledge. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I am a I am a, like the archetypical Sagittarian, so I'm I'm always learning and always reading and always changing and and then I want to tell everybody everything that I've learned about <laughs> since the last time I saw them. <laughs> oh yeah, that's Sagittarius. Yep. <laughs> I got well, your number. Do you have any? Uh, <laughs> well, do you have any last-minute um, thoughts or comments, Doctor Susan, for our listeners? Yeah, um, kind of reiterate something I said earlier, which is that you know this is can be really overwhelming, um, and so finding where you want to kind of make your your point of entry is is key. Um, I think it's also really important. As I know I certainly fall prey to feeling like I'm not doing enough, that you know, anything you're doing is, is good. You know, there's no sort of checklist for how to be a good activist. Um, I am reachable um, through my sort of business Facebook page, which I am Dreaming Priestess on Facebook. Um, so I'm always happy to talk to people and point them towards information. Uh, but 
know, this is a daunting task. And, and know that even those of us that have been out there working for a long time are, are daunted by the enormity of it. So we all got to take care of each other. Um, and I think remember that witches and energy workers and will workers, we bring a unique set of skills. Um, planning a protest and planning a ritual are a lot the same. So you know, know that you, uh, you have skills to offer and that there are people and groups out there that – that want and need what you have to offer. So you have permission to go out and be an activist, even if you don't do it perfectly, because <laughs> nobody's ever going to do it perfectly. Mm. Uh, do you have any things coming up in the next few weeks that you are uh, promoting? Yeah, I do actually. Um, I have uh, my next full moon circle, which if you kind of want to come and see what my form of spiritual activism looks like on the ground, um, I do a monthly full moon circle for women. And, and as I mentioned earlier, it's for all women, um, cis, trans, or otherwise, and for non-binary folks who find their home in women and femme-centric spaces. I know that's a big old mouthful, but I haven't found a better way to say it. Uh, my next one will be Saturday. The, let me get the, March, it'll be Saturday, March 11th, had my calendar in my head. Saturday, March 11th at 7.30 at Horizon Unitarian Universalist Church in Carrollton, Texas. Uh, let me grab that address for you. That is at 1641 West Hebron Parkway in Carrollton. Uh, so if you are in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, please do uh, come by. It's a great group of people, and uh, we will be doing some work just around the moon, um, and then we're kind of deciding what our political work is going to be for the month. And then our donation basket above and beyond our rent to the church will go to a worthy political cause last month. It was Planned Parenthood of North Texas. So we're deciding who is going to get our March basket. Love to see you. I am offering a couple courses through mystery school of the goddess.net. I'm offering an intro to intersectional feminist theory and on the sort of lighter side, I'm offering my, energizing Osara class, which has all kinds of rituals and recipes and crafts. So you can come get your women's studies on or come get your witchcraft on or come do both. Um, and then I'm sort of looking ahead to spring, but not a lot on the calendar just yet. But if you do want to keep up with me on Facebook, do a search for Dreaming Priestess and you will find me there. It's Dreaming Priestess. Uh, I also have my Dreaming Priestess creations page, but that's more for my Etsy shop and let's for my rituals and, and classes. Uh, and I am excited to see all kinds of new stuff coming up in my community here around spiritual activism. So I will be uh, keeping Michael posted and he can pass that information on to y'all. And don't you have a, you know, with how you are a Pagans Tonight radio host, you have another pod, you have oh, a yes. podcast on the network. Yes, I do. Um, and then I am on with Michael Graywell on the first and third, sometimes fifth, uh, or sometimes fourth, uh, Wednesday of the month. Uh, we do a show on Pagan Tonight Radio called All Acts of Love and Pleasure, where we talk about sex, sexuality, relationships, queer issues, and pretty much whatever else we can kind of get up to on those Wednesday nights from 7 to 8. show will be on March 1st and Shauna or a night is coming on to talk with us about leadership and about 
confronting isms, racism, sexism, all that good stuff in the pagan community. She's done some great work around that. We have a lot of fun. And you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash allactslove. Um, so absolutely come and listen to us. We, we uh, love it when people call in and come in to the chat room. And definitely with the way that things are shaping up around queer rights and religious freedom and women's rights in the culture, uh, we'll be talking about some more activism on All Acts of Love and Pleasure, too, although um, we also like to get silly. So for sure, come on. Um, <laughs> I'm also occasionally on the Pantsuit Republic of Pantsuit Republic of Texas podcast. I just did an interview about LGBTQ rights in Texas in the context of a couple of bills that are coming up through our state legislature. So you can go to pantsuitrepublic.org and find us there or find us through iTunes as PSR podcast. And Dr. Susan is also uh, working on a paper for the same um, queer anthology that I submitted a paper for, and they both got accepted, uh, but they're, it's a queer spirituality anthology being put out by Lee Harrington, and what is his co-author's name? Hi. Oh, I should know this. I feel bad that I don't know. Let me look. In front of me. Yes, I am writing about uh, creating women's rituals or uh, goddess-centered spaces that are welcoming to all women and all femmes. So that's, I'm super excited. It is uh, Ty Phoenix, uh, oh, Ty, I can't say your last name. Is it Kilston? Kilston? I can't say it. I'm so sorry. Uh, but Ty is fabulous and is a, a great, uh, a great co-editor, so I'm excited for that anthology to come out as well. And we're also going to be looking into getting Lee on the show. Lee is a uh, sex educator and uh, queer trans activist uh, who's also a podcaster. So at some point in the future, we will try to get Lee on our show here on Walking the Unnamed Path. Um, It will be a little difficult because Lee lives in Alaska. <clears throat> yes, yes. Quite a time, time shift right there. Um, but, well, you know, we, we joked were, that there's really only six pagan podcasters. We're just on everybody's shows. <laughs> but thank you again, Dr. Susan, for being on the show. Thank you so much. And, yeah, I'd love to come back. Thank you, Matthew, for being my co-host. Yes, we definitely want to have you back because the the only reason I stopped was because I felt like the show could probably go on for another two hours. And <laughs> I don't... <laughs> I don't think uh, our listeners would listen all the way through. (laughs) You'll have to record me and like chop it up into into little pieces and and dole it out. (laughs) But yes, thank you, Matthew, for you know being a wonderful co-host and for you know I love all the questions that you had uh, for our guest today. No, there were some great questions. Thank you. I like get my little high talking about that kind of stuff. <laughs> well, I think these are important conversations to have, especially right now. And we're yeah. definitely going to revisit this because there's a lot going on. And in many ways we're just getting started. 
Dr. Susan, thank you, and and thank you, Michael, for pulling everything together um, from booking and, and arranging everything. And thank you to our listeners. Um, we hope you mm-hmm. uh, stood by us for this uh, for this long two hour journey, but I think it was well worth it. And thank you for tuning in to Walking the Unnamed Path. We love you. Uh, take care of yourself. Take care of your community. And we will connect soon. Yes. And if you have any comments or questions for anything that we talked about on the show today, uh, please email us at walkingtheunnamedpath at gmail.com. You can also, again, hit us up on Facebook at facebook.com slash walkingtheunnamedpath or Twitter at, at walking underscore the UP. Um, you know, I am going to play us out with a little Celia, if I can find it. Oh, come on. My computer is being just a tad slow. Celia. And if you don't know who Celia is, she is an amazing pagan artist and act, big activist. Uh, let me see. Where is it? Gosh. Oh, here we go. This is uh, Celia, Red, Alabaster, and Blue. She is a young African American male. By the time he hits drafted, he might be dead or live in jail. And he found his life of crime when they said no child left behind. He's an American too She is 90 with dementia all alone Well, her family couldn't take it So they put her in that home And now she withers down to bones At night she gently She's an American too She is a young mom, a refugee She's four with child if her daddy finds out, he will go insanely wild. They say they understand his plight, call themselves the Christian light. She's an American too. And all they want to be free. But greenbacks, dollars, can't buy your dignity. Black gold and ice cream separate.